0: Welcome to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast, a series of audio recording files where Jonathan engages with questions and concepts through the lens of Renee Sherard's mimetic theory and open and relational theology. There are a lot of great podcasts out there, but when you think about it, really, this is probably the best one. season five, and our theme is frequently asked questions. If you like the show, leave a review, and most importantly, sign up for Jonathan's newsletter at jonathanfosteronline.com.
1: All right, welcome to season five, everybody. I got a friend who, in his first season, he did something like 243 episodes I'm like, good grief. Uh, Do you do anything else besides podcast? 243. My attention span would be so gone. I'm more of like a 10 episode per season kind of a guy. Anyhow, well, his show is really good. So maybe maybe that's the thing. Maybe you're supposed to do that many before it can get good. All right. Anyhow, it is season number five, FAQ. We're calling it Frequently Asked Questions. Frequently Asked Questions. Okay. Thank you, Clint. Uh, hey, do you ever use anything besides your radio voice?
0: No, not really.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm like, I'm imagining you at the grocery store. Let's say, all right, let's say you call home. Do you say something like, let me just hear you say, I'm at the store. Hey, do we need any milk?
0: I'm at the store. Do we need any milk?
1: Okay, so now we know. Gosh, I feel bad for your partner. That's all right. Hey, actually, why don't you run to the store right now while we're talking about it? I've got to do the show. I'll catch up with you later. Yeah, so this is a season of FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions. And let me just tell you a little bit about how this came to be. Not that questions are hard to come by these days, but a few weeks ago, I posted something on Facebook like, hey, what do younger people want to hear about? What do younger people have questions about? If you were listening to a podcast, I mean, I assume they had listened to my podcast, but it's possible. Some people haven't. So if you were listening to a podcast, what kind of questions would you like me to wrestle with or people like me to wrestle with? And so um, as you can imagine, I got all kinds of responses. I got a bevy of responses that came back. Um, a lot of them were, many of them were things that I kind of expected. Some of them were surprising. And then in addition to that, I sent a text to a group of friends who are in college because I know young people, they're not, they're not on Facebook and I don't even blame them. So they're not on there. They don't, they didn't hear when I asked the question. And so I got some good stuff back from them too. And so here's what I did. I took all these questions and I began to work through them. And there were there were tons of questions. I can't remember. I think there were like 80 or 90 maybe. I'll have to count them up and let you know. There were questions around deconstruction. You know, things like, I've been deconstructing, but now what do I do? Questions around parenting. Um, a, a lot of questions like this, and I know a lot of you young parents that are like this. Essentially, the questions were, how do I you know, teach my child about Jesus without exposing them to the toxicity of the church? And my short answer to that is good luck. So I had questions like that, I even had some questions about empty nesting, which that was cool because I'm like, hey, that's not just a young person question. And I know all about empty nesting. I think that's a topic that is not talked. It's a transition that isn't talked a lot about. So I may talk some about that. Um, I got a lot of questions that revolve around meaning-making. A lot of young people asking about, you know, how to make meaning and, you know, my my meaning-making system. They didn't use that phrase, but basically the way they've been making meaning through church has been deconstructed, has been disassembled. So essentially, now what? Who am I supposed to be? What should I care about and why? How do I find meaning? So I got a lot of those kinds of questions. I got questions about morality and why the church thinks that it is the arbiter of morality. Uh, Questions about, um, I thought this one is super interesting, uh, individual sin versus collective sin. Questions about, well, tons of questions about the church. Like, what is the purpose of the church? How did we get here? Where do we go from here? Where do we go now? Um, Why do I hear so much about an angry God at church? Why is there so much judgmentalism at church? I got questions about relationship, the future, even got a question about artificial intelligence. So that's th- those are the kinds of things that I got back. So I took all these questions, I worked through them, and then I went next level. That's right. You would have thought I would have been done at that point, but no, I go next level and I take these ideas and comments and questions and I begin to feed them into the Google to see what the Google has to say, what... As I type these things in, what will pop up? I don't know if you've ever um, experimented with Google in this way, but you can begin to type in questions and it'll autofill things. And I was trying to get a sense of whether or not my friends and acquaintances were asking similar kinds of questions as were all of us via Google. Because you know, Google pretty much knows everything about us now for good or for bad. And so I started seeing some interesting trends, some common denominators, if you will. And I took those responses and compared them to what my friends and acquaintances were asking. And then in some cases I reformulated the questions in order to hit what I thought was the broadest uh swath of humanity, cuz that's what we're trying to do here with this podcast. Let's just hit a broad swath of humanity. Why not? How I mean Where are other places in life you get to hit broad (laughs) swaths of humanity? So then I took all the questions and I separated them out into little piles, little categories. And as it turned out, I wound up with nine categories, which works well because most of my seasons are like 10 episodes. So I thought I could do an introduction plus nine episodes of these different categories. Then I started to think about how can... Because as you probably know, well, if you listen to the introduction, at least, um, I am something of a uh, Girardian. So I follow the tenets. I don't follow the tenets. What do I do? I study this guy by the name of Rene Girard, who came up with a thing called mimetic theory. And I also uh, align with a lot of what's going on with open and relational theology. In fact, the dissertation I just completed Um, is called, well, the title of the paper is called A Theology of Consent, subtitle, Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. It's coming out in book form with Sacrosage Press in October. So you're going to want to circle October. Just go ahead and circle the entire month of October on your calendar, which is hard to do because your calendar is probably on the phone. So you're going to have to take a screenshot of your phone and then edit it Yes, and then just draw a little circle around the whole thing so you'll be prepared for October. Because you know how this goes. I am going to ask you to participate and to buy it and to share it and, and to leave a review. Actually, I'll give the book away for free when the time comes if you leave a review on Amazon. Anyhow, I'm getting way ahead of myself here. The point is, I have this dissertation and I have some thoughts that have been vetted by Rene Girard and by Open and Relational Theology And so I'm like, well, I could take these nine categories of questions, run them through this Girardian open and relational filter and come up with some pretty decent responses. I don't know if they will be good answers, but they're going to be decent responses. And since I'm a doctor now, by virtue of the fact that, you know, I'm done with this dissertation, you know, surely I have something reasonably intelligent to say along these lines. So I'm going to need to, Clint, yeah, Can you come back in here before you take off to the store? Could you just introduce these nine categories for us? Go for it.
0: Our categories for frequently asked questions are, number one, deconstruction, two, meaning making, three, relationships, four, church, how did we get here? Five, church, is it even helpful anymore? Number six, future, open or fixed, seven, Technology, artificial intelligence. Whoa, that sounds like something I'd be interested in. Eight, parenting. And number nine, mental health.
1: So that's what's happening with season five. We're going to be wrestling with these things and giving you some idea of my responses to these things as they're filtered through Girardian thinking, and open and relational thinking. And if you're not familiar with open and relational theology, you could go back and listen to a couple of the episodes I've interviewed, interviewed my friend, uh, Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Uh, Tom is probably one of the more well-known open and relational theologians and thinkers, I suppose. For one reason, he's the one who coined the phrase open and relational. Uh, open and relational has a lot of connection with what's called process philosophy and process theology, a lot of that emerged out of the thinking from a guy by the name of Alfred North Whitehead in the early 1900s, who was a thinker way before his time, a brilliant mathematician, philosopher, theologian. Uh, he's, he's less known as a theologian. What's happened is a lot of people have taken his stuff and applied it to theology. And um, yeah, it's really, really interesting, helpful stuff. And all of it has been helpful for me. And it's provided a space for me to come up with some responses and some answers that, frankly, evangelical world didn't allow me to get to over the years. And so I'm really thankful for it. So anyhow, we're going to try to work these questions, these categories through those filters. Furthermore, just when you thought I was done... I'm going to take some of these conversations online to my Patreon page and talk to some friends who are licensed therapists, to some counselors, to some faith leaders, to a handful of different people that I really respect and would really like to get their opinion in on these things so that we're processing them well. So that's what we got going. And you'll see as this plays out, I'm not going to do it on this particular episode, but next episode all the way through to the end. When we get to the end of the episode, I'm going to start bringing them into the conversation either together or maybe um, one-on-one, see what their thoughts are, see if they kind of match up with some of the things that I'm saying. I'm basically trying to just figure out if I'm making any sense or not, if I'm like leading you down the wrong path totally. And then, um, yeah, we'll get to hear from them, let them flesh some of the stuff out through their own um, I think really interesting and intelligent and um, healthy, that's a good word, healthy filters that they have cultivated through their education and just through their own thinking. So I'm really excited that you're going to be able to hear from them, but you, you see where this is going, right? You're going to have to jump on to the Patreon page in order to hear what they have to say. And so the idea is hopefully between all of us, you're going to get some intelligent, and professional responses to these really important things that so many of us are wrestling with. That's the goal anyhow. All right, so for the remainder of our time together on this episode, I kind of want to set the stage. Because I think your copious amounts of questions about meaning-making might be important to address right up front. And as we'll do it, I'll try to use it as a springboard into lots of these other topics. So though my dissertation, Theology of Consent, isn't about meaning-making specifically, I think the inharmonics, I might say the echoes, like the tributaries that run through meaning-making discourse also run through uh, the work so uh, let's chat a bit about meaning. Hey, hey, Clint, how about you? How
0: do you go about finding meaning? I have often wondered how to find meaning in the vast emptiness of life.
1: <laughs> well, maybe this will help you.
0: Well, I'll be the judge of that.
1: Aha, uh-huh. yes, of course, you will be the judge of that. Uh, and all the listeners will be the judge of that. All right, so here's where we're at. It, this, this whole conversation is, is difficult, because the atheist will generally say that there's no meaning. And then the theist will come along and generally say there's meaning, but only because God stepped out of space and time to help us. So what I think is that there is some measure of truth in both, but they're like, they're like half-truths. And of course, the problem with half-truths is, as you know, is always the other half. So here's the problem with the atheist approach. And I'm oversimplifying a bit, but generally it's, you know, well, meaning doesn't come by way of objective truth. And I kind of agree with that. But then the atheist will generally turn around and and act as if their truth is the objective truth. I hope you can see the problem with all of that. And then fueled by the idea that there is no objective truth, then they lean into science in terms of that being the thing that gives us clear ways to move into the future. Like there's no objective truth, so science is what we're going to rely upon. So I'm into science. I think we should emphasize it. But the problem is when science gets into this whole thing of saying there's no extra sensory nonsense we should be dealing with because the issue there is a lack of definition around the science of what is sensory and what is extra sensory. So when someone says, well, obviously, it's about the five senses, touch, taste, smell, see, hear, you can say, did I say all five, touch, taste, smell, see, hear? Yeah, I think so. You can say, well, what do you do with the other senses? Because there are other senses that science routinely incorporates now, like the sense of balance or thermal perception or something called interoception, uh, like hunger and thirst are examples of interoception. It's where the interior organs are communicating something to the brain. Depending on who you read and listen to, there might be as many as eight senses, or as many as twelve. I've seen fifteen. So that's that's challenging because we haven't, we don't have a shared definition of what is sensory and what is extra, extrasensory. Furthermore, even if we did agree, even if we could say okay. There are 12 senses, and that's it. Anything beyond that is speculation. The sense that one was hearing from God, for example, in this case, would just be speculation. But how would you even prove or disprove this kind of a thing? If lots of people said they could hear from God, wouldn't the scientist be compelled to try it? Wouldn't the scientist enter into prayer, for example, for like 90 days to see if it yielded any results? To gain lived empirical data so I'm all for science but elevating it to the ultimate thing that provides us with meaning I hope you can see is problematic however I'm even less interested in going the route of the theist who says our lives are meaningless without a deity who comes from outside time and space to give it to us First of all, nothing comes from outside time and space. What the nature of reality is telling us is that everything is in relationship. And science has been telling this uh, to us for quite some time, that energy isn't just in one fundamental building block. The energy is in the relationship between different building blocks. It's true at a molecular level. It's true at a macro level. When you think about space, um, it's It seems invisible, like that there's nothing there. But what we're finding out is that it's actually... Space is actually interconnected fields or waves of energy. Magnetic resonance, gravitational fields, uh, quantum fluctuations, etc. Nothing is separate from anything else. And then, of course, if one takes the Bible seriously... One has to realize that for the divine to truly interact with creation, there must be a reciprocal relationship. If God truly responds to creation, she must be in relationship. Many people don't realize that traditional classic theism doesn't believe this. The majority of American Christianity does not fundamentally align with the idea that God can be affected. It's called the doctrine of divine impassibility, or sometimes you'll hear it referred to as sovereignty, and it means that God doesn't change. In other words, in this case, God cannot be a God of compassion. God can only emulate the idea of compassion. For God to be authentically compassionate, God would be subject to the change that takes place when one suffers, or the change that takes place when someone loves or becomes vulnerable or is hurt. So then all the biblical passages around God grieving, lamenting, rejoicing, dancing, singing, hearing, responding, they're all just God pretending. Given that he knows what the human feels, the doctrine of impassibility says something like God can kind of emulate that and pretend, you know, fake being compassionate. They, of course, wouldn't say it that particular way, but that's the way it plays out. God cannot really feel because that would require god to be influenced by creation. Well, I don't like that at all. I mean, can you imagine us talking about a good parent and saying that he or she wasn't someone was someone who was not affected by their child? It doesn't make any sense. Who doesn't hurt when their child hurts or experiences joy when their child experiences joy? It's just not right. So, for any young people who are listening, You don't have to think one has to be coerced into thinking this way or buying into the metaphysical constraints that the classical theist constrains himself with, which then forces you to only view the divine in that particular boxed-in way. And this is why I don't have many friends. I'm not an atheist, and I'm certainly not a theist. I'm trying to get to meaning in another way, So the measure of truth, the other half of the truth, is that I'd still like to keep all the science I possibly could, and I'd still like to be open to the possibility of something extrasensory, because I actually think there's a way to suggest that it might make sense. And I'll probably have to get into all of that another time. But even if there wasn't a way for extrasensory stuff to make sense, what Are we suggesting that we could only make meaning out of things that we understood? (laughs) Now we're back to something not making sense because everyone knows, or at least everyone operates day to day in a way that understands that we're never going to get to the end of knowledge. There are all kinds of things that we don't understand. I mean, love, for one thing, it's not rational. Who could ever really understand love? Or why anyone would like the Las Vegas Raiders. Who could explain such a crazy thing? Some things are just too difficult. Hallmark movies, for example. televangelists, Or some of the stuff that Jordan Peterson's been saying lately, which, frankly, actually sounds a lot more like a televangelist than um, an intellectual like he used to sound like. You know, some of these things, they just defy explanation. So keeping science in play and keeping the possibility of something bigger than us, extrasensory, at play is, I think, both viable and valuable. And open and relational theology has helped me do just that. It's helped me be realistic about these things. I might say it this way. It's helped me listen to the world, but also to the divine. And even more so, to realize that in many respects, there's no difference. As the world goes, so goes the divine. As the divine goes, so goes the world. I truly believe... I think maybe a better way of saying it because it's not just about belief or faith, also intellectually. I truly think that it makes the most sense to think in terms of God actually being in genuine relationship with us. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead has this famous statement where he says something like, God is not the exemption, but rather is the chief exemplification of all that's going on. All these things are taking place within God and she or he or it is experiencing it with us and being moved and being affected and being changed. And I like that idea of God being in the middle of all of this with us. And I think there's some really healthy reasons why I like that. And we're going to get into that more as the season unfolds. But I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of set the stage with how challenging it is to create meaning when you've got on the one side the atheist saying there really isn't any meaning. You've got the theist on the other side saying, well, there's no meaning unless God gives it to you. Um, they actually both wind up being kind of the same thing because the atheist kind of winds up saying there's no meaning unless science gives it to you. The theist is there's no meaning unless God gives it to you. And I'm striking a middle ground because of my work with uh, Girardian stuff and because of open and relational theology that says no meaning comes through a multiplicity of factors. And you get to be a part of the whole journey. You get to speak into it. You have agency and autonomy, that there is science, that there is the divine, but also that there is you and you live at the intersection of these things. So as we address these questions, I hope you'll be able to keep that first and foremost in your mind. I really want to value you and esteem you. I really want to encourage you to listen to you there's no getting to meaning without you i mean there's also no getting to meaning without others as well so again is a combination all right that's where we're going i'm really glad that you're with us i look forward to hanging out i hope you'll find me on the social media channels jump on my newsletter for sure jump on patreon and uh, let's keep the conversation going all right outro music clint take it away
0: Thanks for being a part of the podcast. Jump onto Patreon to get access to Dr. J's writing, in-depth interviews with some of his therapist friends, and, most importantly, his unbelievably funny cartoon sketches. All of that kind of stuff can be found at patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster. Check it out. No, really, go do it now.